You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Now from our Old Testament description of our shepherd in Psalm 23, turn to the New Testament description of our shepherd in John 10. John's Gospel in the 10th chapter. When you found your place, we will read together verses 7 through verse 18 of John 10, verse 7 through 18. So Jesus said to them again, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who is not the owner of the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and is not the, and not concerned about the sheep. I am the good shepherd, and I know my own, and my own know me. Even as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep which are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will hear my voice, and they will become one flock with one shepherd. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, so that I may take it again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my Father. Let's pray together before we begin. Our God, it is to your word that we turn to learn about you, our great and kind and gracious God. We would not be able to know anything savingly of you apart from your word. And so we thank you that you have revealed yourself in the pages of Scripture. We thank you for such a good shepherd who has loved us and laid down his life for us. We pray that as we look at this passage and the teaching of our Lord Jesus here, that you would help us to draw out of your truth that will comfort our hearts and assure us in our faith and in our, uh, in our salvation and our security in Christ. Thank you, O oh God, that you have loved us and set your love upon us even before the foundation of the world, that we were yours and that we belong to Christ. There is no more secure place that we could be than in his fold, in his flock, belonging to him. And so we thank you for these things, and we ask that you would open our eyes and our hearts, our minds to your word, and give us insight and illumination today by your spirit, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we are looking at some of the blessings that come to those who belong to God by virtue of Christ and who belong to Christ by virtue of the Father giving them to his Son. And we've looked last week at the ownership, the ownership that Christ has of a people. And some of the things that we are seeing uh, are giving us, I think, a great sense of assurance and confidence in our salvation, and and rightly so. One of the things that we should have as as Christians is an assurance of our salvation. And there is nothing that I could give or do for you that helps you to be assured other than to show you in Scripture what Scripture says about your salvation and your shepherd. And it is only in the pages of Scripture that we look at here and we understand who Christ is and what He has done and who we are and by whose virtue, by whose act, by whose grace we belong to Him. And when we see all of that, it should bring to the hearts of God's people an assurance and a confidence. Because we know that if the Father has given a people to His Son... And he has said to the Son and commissioned the Son to go into the world and to save those people. 
and the Son has promised that He will do fully all of the will of the Father and has come to save those people and to secure them for His eternal glory as His own. And if He has promised that He will lose none of them because they're His and He loves them, if that is the promise of God, then you and I can have confidence. We can have confidence that if Jesus is a perfect high priest, if He is a perfect divine Son, if He is a perfect shepherd, then I am secure in Him. Because then and only then can I say that I know that there is nothing in heaven or earth that shall separate me from the love of God in Christ Jesus. There is nothing. There is nothing that come at, can come at me from any angle. There is nothing that can happen in this life or in the next which will sever me from my shepherd because he is perfect and he will lose none. So there's great confidence and great assurance just in understanding that I am his sheep, he is my shepherd, I belong to him, he belongs to me in that sense that he is my shepherd, he is my God and my king, and I can rest in him. I can rest in his promise to me that he will save sanctify and secure all of those whom the Father has given to Him. He will raise all of them up at the last day. He will gather all of them in and He will lose none. Great confidence and great assurance in there in that. So now the question then becomes, do you belong to Christ? Are you in His flock, in His fold? Do you belong to Him and have you come to Him in the way that God has commanded you to come to Him and belong to Him by virtue of your faith in and your repentant faith in the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ? So that kind of all sums up everything we've looked at in the first five verses, this Good Shepherd discourse. We have seen that Jesus is the sincere shepherd. He doesn't have to climb up over a wall. He simply comes up to the fold, calls out those who are his own. We have seen that he is a summoning shepherd. He comes up, he calls all of those who belong to him, come to him. They will come to him. There's no, there's no danger that any of them will be lost or, or that any of them will fail to come to him because he secures his sheep from defection and from deception just by virtue of his voice. Because as we read just moments ago, he knows his own and his own know him, and they come to him, and he gives to them eternal life, and they will never perish. That is his promise. So that sums up the first five verses. Now we're looking at verses 6 through verse 10. And we're looking now, we've seen Jesus the sincere shepherd, the summoning shepherd, and now a supplying shepherd, a supplying shepherd. And we're going to see that Jesus, as a shepherd that supplies for his sheep, supplies, and I've, no, I've, I've just indicated three things in the text. First, salvation. That's in verse 9, the first part of verse 9. He, he saves them. They are saved. They come in through him and are saved. The last part of verse 9, he supplies sustenance. We find pasture in the Savior. And then third, abundant life, and that's in verse 10. We're going to look at the first two today, salvation and sustenance, and see that this is what Jesus supplies to us. Before we get into the verse, I want to give you just a couple of things that I want you to notice from the, the passage itself. Notice, first of all, that verse 6 and verse 7 is an indication to us of to whom this these words are addressed and what Jesus is going to be saying in verses 8 and following. Look at verse 6. This figure of speech, Jesus spoke to them, but they did not understand what those things were which He had been saying to them. Who's the they and the them of verse 6? Remember, we have to trace that all the way back up through the text, skip over the chapter break, which is artificially there, all the way up to verse 40 and 41 of chapter 9 to find out that Jesus is addressing the Pharisees. And he is using, John says, was using a figure of speech. The word means something hidden, a symbol or a sign, or a language that contains something with a symbolic or a significant meaning. That's what the word means. It's used only here in John's Gospel. It is kind of a word that is sort of like parable. Whenever Jesus hid meaning within a figure of speech, whether it was a parable or a metaphor, it always had two goals in mind, a twofold purpose. And we've covered this before. 
Remember the twofold purpose. One, to hide truth from those who rejected him, to mask it so that they would be blinded to it. And second, to reveal truth to those who believed upon him, to hide truth and to reveal truth. And that's exactly what we see going on in this discourse. We have read that Jesus is the shepherd. We've read about the hirelings and the the whole analogy that is before us. He calls his own unto himself because they belong to him and they come to him and he gives them life and all of that. And then the Pharisees, they heard this and they didn't get it. Now let me ask you, when you read verses 1-5, through do you get it? Do you understand what he's saying? It seems pretty obvious to us, don't we? We look at it and we say, okay, the thieves and the robbers, that's the Pharisees. We understand that he is the good shepherd. We understand that we are the sheep. We understand he's the one who summons us and we call because by his grace, he secures those who are his. We get it. We read verses 1 to 5. We understand everything in there. The Pharisees didn't. They didn't get it. This figure of speech, Jesus spoke to them, the Pharisees. They didn't understand what those things were. Now, here's one of the funny ironies in John's gospel. John is a a very ironic writer. Here's one of the funny ironies. This whole discourse began when the Pharisees asked him mockingly, we're not blind too, are we? Remember Jesus had talked about the blindness? We're not blind too, are we? That little mocking question, sort of jabbing at him. Are you suggesting that we're blind? And then Jesus answered him and said, yes, end of chapter 9. As a matter of fact, you are blind. Then he gave him this good shepherd discourse. And what was their response? Did you get what he said? I didn't get what he said. I didn't understand the thing he just said. Anybody else catch that? Who? What's going on here? They didn't get it. What's the answer to this question if they're blind or not? He's just giving them the discourse as plain and simple to us, isn't it? But to those who had hard hearts that were rejecting them, they didn't get it. It's a complete mystery to them. Complete mystery to them. In fact, they were blind. They were so blind that they could not even see that they were the thieves and the robbers spoken of in verse 1. They could not even see that he was the shepherd being described here and his people will come to him. And by that he is referring not just to the man born blind, but to all those who will believe upon him. They didn't see any of that. They didn't get any of it. In fact, they are blind. And that's one of the funny ironies here. The second thing I want you to notice is not just the figure of speech that Jesus uses in verse 6, or the mention of the figure of speech in verse 6, and that they didn't catch what he was saying to them. But in verse 7, Jesus says to them again, he says to them again, Now, this indicates to us that what he has just given us in verses 1 through 5, they didn't understand it. So now Jesus is going to take that same analogy, that same content, and he is going to explain it again to them. But he is going to go into more detail so that he can draw out of this analogy who they are. He's going to mention thieves and robbers again. Who the sheep are. He's going to mention sheep again. Who he is in this little parable that he's given to them. He's going to explain it all over to them again so that this time... They will get it. And in fact, you get to the end of it and they start thinking that he's mad and he's insane because of these claims that he has made. So he is going to describe now in verses 6 through 10, he's going to come back, he's going to recover everything that he's covered in the first five verses. But now I want you to notice a a different analogy that he gives. You notice in verse 7, the reference to I am the door. Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door. Verse 9, I am the door. And I want you to notice that in these verses, not only the I am the door, but verse 10, I am the good, verse 11, sorry, I am the good shepherd. And in verse 14, I am the good shepherd. What we see now is that Jesus refers to himself by way of two analogies, being the door and being the good shepherd. So here's what we have. In this good shepherd discourse, Jesus is the sincere, the summoning shepherd, the supplying shepherd. He is that shepherd. And in this analogy that he has described in verses 1 through 5 of the sheepfold and all the various flocks coming in, the shepherd coming up, opening the door, calling out his own sheep, his sheep coming to him. In that whole picture, that whole analogy, Jesus is two characters in this analogy. He is both the good shepherd who summons his own, 
and He is the doorway through which they come. So we're going to kind of look at, I am the door under the umbrella of I am the Good Shepherd. You get it? Now, weeks ago I told you one of the things that makes John 10 difficult to understand is the fact that there's sort of this dual metaphor here. And so sometimes we wonder, in, in what ways is Jesus describing his role as the door? In what ways is Jesus describing his role as the good shepherd? And so they're kind of, it's a blended metaphor. We're going to do the best we can to sort of keep it separate. So here's what we'll do. As the door, Jesus, the good shepherd, provides for his sheep these three things. Salvation, sustenance, and abundant life. Okay, so keep in mind the metaphor of the door. Let's look, first of all, at salvation. As the door, Jesus provides for his sheep. Salvation for his people. Look at verse 7. Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. There is in verse 9 reference to both salvation and to sustenance. Now, in regards to this metaphor of I am the door, do you remember a couple weeks ago I asked you the question, does anybody ever heard anybody preach this passage and describe the sheepfold as four walls without an actual door and just a hole in the wall where the shepherd laid in the hole of the wall and served as himself the door? Right? So I'd ask that. Do you guys remember that? How many of you, just a show of hands because I am curious, how many of you have heard that passage treated or preached this way? Okay, yeah, a good number. I'm not the only one. Good. I hate being the only one that you know, hears weird things. Okay, so... Back then, a couple weeks ago, I told you I have no idea where that analogy came from because it doesn't seem to be pulled out of this text anywhere. I think I have found where that came from, where that analogy came from. G. Campbell Morgan, in his commentary on the Gospel of John, now G. Campbell Morgan was the pastor at Westminster Chapel in London when Dr. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones came to Westminster Chapel as an associate pastor in 1939. G. Campbell Morgan retired and Dr. Lloyd-Jones, both of these names you're probably familiar with, Dr. Lloyd-Jones took over the preaching role at Westminster Chapel. G. Campbell Morgan's commentary on the Gospel of John, in describing this verse, he makes reference to a story that was told to him, you following this, a story that was told to him by Sir George Adam Smith. So George Adam Smith told this story of an of a experience he had to G. Campbell Morgan. G. Campbell Morgan used this experience as an illustration of this text. Here's what G. Campbell Morgan wrote. Quote, he, that is George Adam Smith, was one day traveling with a guide and came across a shepherd and his sheep. He fell into conversation with him. The man showed him the fold into which the sheep were led at night. It consisted of four walls with a way in. Sir George said to him, that's where they go at night? Yes, said the shepherd. And when they're in there, they are perfectly safe. But there's no door, said Sir George. I am the door, said the shepherd. He was not a Christian man. He was not speaking in the language of the New Testament. He was speaking from the Arab shepherd's standpoint. Sir George looked at him and said, What do you mean by the door? Said the shepherd, When the light has gone and all the sheep are inside, I lie in that open space and no sheep ever goes out but across my body and no wolf comes in unless he crosses my body. I am the door. End quote. Now listen. That will preach. The only problem is that is not the analogy of John 10. Did you catch that? That is the experience of an Arab shepherd sometime in the late 1800s, early 1900s, but that was not the practice of the first century Jew. The practice of the first century Jew that Jesus is referring to was to put all the sheep in a fold and shut the door and keep the hireling inside. And all of the sheep stayed in the fold. And then in the morning, the shepherd came out, he called out to the hireling, the hireling opened the door, and he called out his own sheep by name. 
That's what Jesus is describing. Now, that illustration is a wonderful illustration. The problem is it doesn't illustrate what is in the text because the question is not, what does an late 1800s or early 1900s Arab shepherd think of when he hears the phrase, I am the door? The question is, what did a first century Jew think of when he heard the phrase, I am the door? Everybody follow me? So now the question is, what did Jesus mean when he said, I am the door? He was not referring to the practice of lying down in a doorway to protect the sheep. He is referring to the means of access by which sheep come into the fold for security at night or leave the fold for pasture during the daytime. Jesus was simply saying this, I am the pathway through which security at night is gained and pasture in the day is gained. Whether you want security and you want to enter into God's fold, you must come through me. If you want pasture, you must come through me. For both salvation of his sheep and for sustenance for his sheep, Jesus is that door. He is that path. This is an exclusive claim that Jesus is making, and he is saying that he is the only way for two things, both shepherds and sheep. Now, Jesus is going to allude in verse 8 to thieves and robbers. He has already spoken in verse 1 of thieves and robbers and verse 2 of thieves and robbers. But in this passage, Jesus is saying, if you are to be a true shepherd of the sheep, that is, a minister of the gospel and somebody who shepherds God's people, there is only one way to get into the fold, and that is through the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one way for the shepherds of the sheep. No true minister, no true shepherd of the sheep can ever gain true access to the sheep and be used by the shepherd unless he comes through salvifically, salvation-wise, through the Lord Jesus Christ. A true shepherd must be saved. Does that seem pretty fundamental? A true shepherd must be saved. A true pastor has to be somebody who understands the gospel, has received the gospel, and has himself experienced the gospel. And he himself has come into the fold because he himself has come through the Lord Jesus Christ He has been saved. A true shepherd must be saved. And a true shepherd must enter into ministry, listen, with this single aim, the glory of Christ. He must come into into his ministry by way of Jesus, and he must keep his eye on Christ, because for somebody who shepherds God's people, it is all about pointing people to Christ, modeling Christ, preaching Christ, illustrating Christ, proclaiming Christ, serving Christ, It's all about Him. The strength is from Christ. The glory belongs to Christ. That's how a true shepherd views it. He comes in through Christ, and his whole purpose in ministry is simply to point to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's all he wants to do. He doesn't want anything for himself. And his only goal is to be used by God to magnify Jesus Christ. That's what it means for a shepherd to come in through the door. A thief and a robber wants glory for himself, and he comes up some other way because he's not interested in going through the door. He wants access to the sheep for some other means, but not for glorifying Christ. He's not interested in coming to Christ. But Christ is the only way for both sheep, or for both shepherds and for sheep. I think, and I've said this before, I think one of the, the biggest um, plagues on modern evangelicalism is unconverted ministers. J.C. Ryle in the late 1800s says, unconverted ministers are the dry rot of the church. And listen, things have not gotten better in the last hundred years. They have gotten much, much worse. Unconverted ministers are the dry rot of the church. You'd be surprised, and maybe you're not, at how many people seek positions of ministry within Christianity, the broad umbrella of Christianity, and they do so without any desire whatsoever to honor or glorify Jesus Christ. They have their own agenda and their own, their own, well, their own agenda. That's what they have, their own agenda. Jesus is the only way for both shepherds and for the sheep. Listen. If you want to belong to God's flock, you have to come only and solely through the Lord Jesus Christ. 
This is an exclusive claim. There is salvation in no other name. Jesus is not saying, I am a way into the fold, or I am a way to pasture. He's not saying, I'm one of a lot of different, uh, diverse and various ways into the fold or into the flock. He is saying, I am the door. There is no entrance into the kingdom of God apart from Jesus Christ. This was the preaching of the early church. This was the preaching of the apostles. This is the teaching of Jesus here. I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. And in Acts 4, Peter said, There is no other name given among men whereby we must be saved. And Paul wrote in 1 Timothy, There is one God and one mediator between God and man, the men, or between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. One path, one way. This is exclusive. There is no other entrance into the kingdom of God, and there is no other means by which men may have pasture or go out to flock. Now listen. It is unfaithfulness, it is unfaithfulness to the text of Scripture and to God to say or to teach anything else. That there is one path. There is one path to eternal life. And there is a lot of pressure on ministers and people today to teach what's called inclusivism. Have you heard of this? Inclusivism. Sometimes it's called the wider mercy view. And it's this view. There are many roads to God. Many. You pick your path. Just make sure it's loving. Make sure it's kind. Make sure it's good. Make sure it's somewhat quasi-Christian or somewhat quasi-spiritual. But you pick your path to salvation. This is inclusivism. It was made popular and is gaining popularity. It was made, it's been made, sorry, I should say this. It has increased in popularity due in large part recently to men like Rob Bell who wrote a book called Love Wins. And here's what Love Wins teaches. In the end, love wins. You would have never caught that from the stage of the book, would you? You'd read all the way through the book and you're not going to understand the thing that Rob Bell says. But here's what he does say. In the end, God is loving and his love wins. So it doesn't matter whether you are a Buddhist or a Hindu or a imam or a Muslim or an Orthodox Jewish rabbi or an atheist or an agnostic or a Christ hater. It doesn't matter what your religious philosophy is. It doesn't matter how you live your life. In the end, God's love wins. And everybody is going to be included no matter what your religious stripe and no matter what your religious profession of faith. So you can live your entire life waging war against the true God and against His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, hating Him with your whole being. But in the end, you're going to die and you're going to go to heaven anyway because we're all going to be included. Because everybody's on their own path, and everybody has their own path, and all paths are equal. That's inclusivism, that's wider mercy, that's also heresy. Because you can't make that idea fit at all with what we see in John 10, or any book, any part of the Gospel of John, can we? How many paths are there? There is one path. Do you realize that all the pressure that is coming to bear against us as Christians today, from our culture, from the entertainment industry, from the news media, from even religious leaders amongst the, the broader scope of evangelicalism and Christianity, Pressure is coming to bear against those who believe that there is one way of salvation. How intolerant and fundamentalist and exclusive and bigoted can you possibly be to say that there is only one way to salvation? Even recently in the news, Tim Tebow, whom I still think doesn't have a job, not because he performs poorly, but because he's a Christian and the news and the sports media hates him. Recently, Tim Tebow turned down an invitation to speak at a very large Baptist church in Texas. And this pastor, they had secured the invitation. He was supposed to be there. But everybody got upset because this Baptist church believed that there's only one way to salvation. And why would Tim Tebow go to I mean, can you believe such intolerance that there's only one way of salvation? Of course, this is a Baptist church. This is what Baptists believe. This is what Baptists believe. Everybody knows this is what Baptists believe. This is Orthodox Christian theology. 
And this solid Baptist church believes there's only one way to salvation. And who is this guy to go speak at such a narrow-minded, exclusive, intolerant, bigoted church as one that believes that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone? And so you know what Tim Tebow had to do? He backed out. I'm a bit disappointed in that, but that's what happened. Because all the pressure came to bear against him for being willing to teach or speak at a church or be associated with a church that believes there is one way to salvation. The pressure on you is going to be incredible to deny that there is only one path to salvation. But if you're going to be faithful to Scripture, you have to do what? You have to say, He is the door. That's it. There's one door. There's one path. This is an exclusive message. Listen, what would you think of a doctor if you went in and he diagnosed your disease? And he and that doctor knew that there was only one remedy for this disease, only one cure, only one medicine, one prescription that is going to cure him. But that doctor did not want you to think that he was intolerant or bigoted or narrow-minded. He didn't want you to think that he thought his way was right. So he just told you, look, you have this disease, but you keep taking your daily vitamins and that daily dose of aspirin, and you'll be just fine. And he pets you all the way to the grave, telling you that you just keep taking that. And eventually, look, it doesn't matter what medication you take, you just take medication, and you're going to be just fine. What would you think of such a doctor? You would say he was negligent. You would say he was a coward. You would say he is prostituting his profession. You would say all kinds of horrible things about him. And so it is with a minister or a proclaimer of the gospel or a Christian who says, look, I will stroke you all the way to your eternal damnation and tell you that the path you're on is just fine. There's no need to repent and turn. How loving is it to not tell people about how they can have life and salvation? How loving is it to not tell them that? Because you're scared that they might think you're narrow-minded or bigoted or intolerant. That's not loving at all. That's not the loving thing to do. You know what the loving thing to do is? To plead with people and say, look, there is one way. It is exclusive. It is narrow. But listen, even though it is exclusive, it is also incredibly inclusive. Look at verse 9. I am the door if anyone enters through me. Isn't that good news? If anyone. Not just if rich people or not just if poor people or if Jews or if Gentiles or if the great or if the small or if the mighty or if the weak. It's if anyone. So this is the gospel. The gospel proclamation is, come, anyone. Doesn't matter what your stripe is. Doesn't matter what who you belong to. Doesn't matter what your race is, what the color of your skin is, what your status in society is. Anyone can come. But listen, you must and can come only through one door, the Lord Jesus Christ. It is narrow. It is incredibly exclusive. But it is also incredibly inclusive in the sense that it is open to anyone who will come. But anyone who will come must come only one way. Why is that? Because he alone is the shepherd of the sheep. He alone is the door through which salvation is gained. And if you do not come through him, you will stand outside. So a sinner can stand outside the fold and say, you know what, I don't like the door that is provided. I want a different door. So I'm going to walk around the edge of the fold and see if there's something else on the other side. I don't want to go through that door. I'm going to find my own door. Listen, if that's your attitude, you will remain outside the fold until you die. And then you will be under judgment because you did not come through the door. And a sinner can stand outside and say, I'll find my own door. I'll make up my own door. I'll take a little bit of this and a little bit of that and I'll sort of create my own way. No, you remain outside the uh, the fold under the judgment of God because this offer of the gospel is through the door. One and only one way. We have to reiterate this because listen, everything in Christianity and everything in our culture says that that is not true. But it is the truth. Either Jesus is telling the truth or he is lying. If he is telling the truth and he is the door, if he is lying, he is not worthy of your confidence or your trust. Bail on it. But if he is telling the truth, that he is the door, then there is only one path to salvation, and it is through Jesus Christ. It is an incredibly exclusive message. And he came to save his people from their sins. That's what verse 9 says. I am the door. If anyone enters through me, 
he will be saved. That's salvation, saved. That's good news, isn't it? Is it loving to tell somebody that they can get salvation some other way apart from Christ when that ends in damnation? That's not the loving thing at all. The loving thing to do is to say, if you want salvation, you come through the Lord Jesus Christ because he is the door, and if anyone comes through him, he will be saved. The reason for Christ's coming was not primarily to show us the love of God. He did that. And the reason for his coming was not to show us, primarily to show us mercy. He did that. And it wasn't primarily to show us compassion, though he did that as well. And it wasn't just to to teach us about life and love and health and happiness and the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan. He taught about all of those things, but none of that was the primary reason he came. You know the primary reason he came? To give, verse 11, his life for the sheep. That's why he came. He came to give his life for the sheep. The angel said, you shall name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. He came to seek and to save that which was lost, to give his life as a ransom for many. And here's the irony. People who want to stay away from the blood atonement, the the bloody cross, and the wrath of God pour out upon the Son on the cross, people who want to remove that from the gospel in order to focus on the love and the mercy and the compassion end up undermining both. They actually remove from the Christian message the very thing which is itself is the greatest demonstration of love and compassion and grace and forgiveness that you could possibly imagine. That the righteous one would die for the unrighteous. That the shepherd himself, rather than asking the sheep to lay down their lives for him, that he would lay down his life for the sheep. That is love. But you don't get biblical Christianity or biblical love unless you have at its core the reason he came. And that was to provide salvation. Verses 11 through 18, we're going to be looking at how that salvation is provided for his sheep. But he came to save his people from their sins. Salvation. Second, and we won't take as long on this one, he came to provide sustenance. He came to provide sustenance. Look at the end of verse 9. He will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The language of this verse is so striking, strikingly similar to Psalm 23. You almost can't miss it. Remember Psalm 23? The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. Surely goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Jesus is borrowing that language and that imagery from Psalm 23. He is saying, look, the psalmist, the, the, the shepherd that you sing about in Psalm 23, that's me. Can you imagine a more audacious claim? The shepherd you sing of in Psalm 23, Yahweh, that's me. I am the one. I am the door that provides pasture for your souls. I am the door that provides salvation for you. You want to go out to green pastures, you want to lie beside steel waters, it can only come through Jesus Christ. He is not only the path of salvation for his people, but listen, he is the only path to sustenance for his people. The sheep went into the fold through the door to gain safety at night. The sheep left the fold through the door in order to get pasture during the day. And they would leave with their shepherd and he would go out ahead of them and they would follow him and he would lead them to green pastures. He would lead them to quiet still waters where they could lay down and they could, they could soak in the sun and they could enjoy the, the green grass and the, the juicy, uh, I was going to say juicy water. All water is juicy. Never had a drop of dry water in my life. Where you could enjoy the green grass and the wet water to quench your thirst. That's just the imagery that Jesus is employing. Listen. If you are hungry in your soul, Christ is the only thing that can satisfy that. That's what he's saying. You want pasture? You come through me. If you do not get pasture through him, you remain inside the fold and you're going to starve to death. The one who is himself infinite enough to provide our salvation is himself infinite enough to provide our sustenance. Do you think that the the same Savior who is infinite in his mercy and grace, infinite in his person, the one who is Yahweh in himself, the great I am, is able to save us, but not to give us satisfaction or sustenance. Listen, 
He is infinitely able to give the satisfaction and the comfort and the encouragement and the rest that our souls crave. That's the idea. You want pasture? You come to Christ. You thirsty? You come to Christ. You hunger? You come to Christ. And if we refuse to find our satisfaction in Him, we cannot fault Him for being inadequate to provide our satisfaction. Because the inadequacy rests not with Him, but with us. Because we refuse to be satisfied in Him for all things. And we begin to be parched, and we hunger, and we thirst, and we shrivel, and we dry up when we seek to put other things in His place and to find satisfaction for our souls in other things when we ought to be coming to Him. You want salvation? You come through Christ. You want daily sustenance for your soul? It can only come through Christ. That's what it means that He is the door. He is the door. So He provides for us salvation. He provides for us sustenance. And there is a third one, and this we're going to look at next week. He provides for us abundant life. That's in verse 10. I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. We'll look at that next week. You may have said to yourself, we kind of skipped over verse 8, and you're right. We're going to take verse 8 and we're going to take verse 10 together and look at this abundant life that the shepherd provides for those who are his next week. Let's pray together. Our God, we are so grateful for all that you have given to us in your Son. And if there is, if our souls hunger or thirst, it can only be met in Christ. We know that. And yet we, as people who have idle factories in our hearts, tend to put in place anything in the stead of Christ for our sustenance and our nourishment and the refreshment that our souls crave. Lord, we recognize our propensity to do this. Help us to not do that. We repent of that. We turn from that. We pray that we would keep our eyes and hearts fixed on Christ. And may we find in you and in your grace and in the Lord Jesus Christ food for our souls and water for our thirsty souls that we may be satisfied with him and delight in Christ who is infinitely able to meet all of our needs. Thank you for a Savior who has not only saved us and delivered us from the wrath of God for our sin, but who has also satiated our every need and provides himself for us that we might have pasture and that we might have life. Thank you for the abundant life that is ours in Christ. It is in his name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.